Hey, you found us. Welcome, everybody. This is Scripture Gems. Hello, and welcome to the show. My name is John Fulmer, and this is my brother Jay. How's it going, John? We are two brothers who just can't get enough of the Scriptures. Yeah, we love them. This episode, we're going over the Come Follow Me lesson for July 18th through 24th, 2022. This is covering Ezra chapters 1 and 3 through 7, and Nehemiah chapters 2, 4 through 6, and 8. And now let's bring out the star of the show, the Scriptures. Hello, Scriptures. Oh, it's so nice to see them. And now let's consult the Scripturematic 6000 to find out how long it will take to read this week's reading. 45 minutes, 51 seconds. That's another long one, but what would it be daily? Six minutes, 33 seconds. Yeah, come on. We can all do that. Now, for those of you who want to do a little extra, you notice that we're not reading all of Ezra and Nehemiah in the Come, Follow Me, but Jay and I are going to talk about it. Oh, yes. So if you want to read all of both books, it will take you two hours, 57 seconds. Nice. That's like a movie. Or 17 minutes, 16 seconds daily. Come on. That sounds great. And we're going to help you with a lot of the details, kind of some historical background that'll help make sense of these books. But I have a question, John. Yes? We skipped First and Second Chronicles. Where are First and Second Chronicles? Oh, alas, I'm afraid we did. Chronicles often gets overlooked because it covers much of the same time period as First and Second Kings. We highlighted some important insights from Chronicles as we studied First and Second Kings, so we did include it in our study, but if you want to read it, here's how long it would take you from the Scripturematic 6000. First Chronicles will take you 2 hours, 17 minutes, 30 seconds, or 19 minutes, 38 seconds each day for a week, and Second Chronicles will take you 2 hours, 50 minutes, 1 second, or 24 minutes, 17 seconds each day for a week. Nice. And here we've got time codes for this week's study. As you can see, you can study just the Come, Follow Me reading or buckle up and we'll talk about it all together. So when we last read, Jerusalem was taken over by the Babylonians. The walls of the city were torn down and the Temple of Solomon was destroyed. The people were taken captive into Babylon and there they remained. Jeremiah the prophet and, of course, Lehi warned the people of Judah but they would not listen. They would not repent. With the prophecies of the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile of the people, Jeremiah also offered a promised return. Yeah, and let's take a look at a couple of those prophecies. From Jeremiah 25, 11 through 12, he says, And this whole land shall be a desolation and an astonishment, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon seventy years. And it shall come to pass, when seventy years are accomplished, that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, saith the Lord, for their iniquity and the land of the Chaldeans, and will make it perpetual desolations. And here's another in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 10. For thus saith the Lord, that after seventy years be accomplished at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you in causing you to return to this place. And let's do one more in Jeremiah 32, verses 36 to 38. And now therefore thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning this city, whereof ye say, it shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon by the sword, and by the famine, and by the pestilence. Behold, 
I will gather them out of all countries whither I have driven them in mine anger and in my fury and in great wrath, and I will bring them again unto this place, and I will cause them to dwell safely, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. So in fulfillment of these prophecies, the Babylonian Empire was soon taken over by the Persians. There's always a bigger fish. Remember that the first fish was Assyria, who scattered the northern kingdom of Israel. Then Babylon took over Assyria's empire, and now Persia is taking over Babylon, and poor Israel is in the midst of it all. Right. Ezra chapters 1 through 6 contain an account of the return of the first group of Jews to Jerusalem in approximately 538 B.C. and their efforts to rebuild the temple. Ezra chapters 7 through 10 contain an account of Ezra's return to Jerusalem in approximately 458 B.C. and his efforts to help the Jews living there keep the Lord's commandment to not marry outside the covenant. So as we study this book, we can learn about how the Lord enables his people to overcome opposition and accomplish his will. We can also learn about the importance of not repeating the sins of previous generations. So with that, let's start in Ezra chapter 1, starting in verse 1. Now, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and put it also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord God of heaven hath given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he hath charged me to build him an house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? His God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and build the house of the Lord God of Israel. He is the God, which is in Jerusalem. Now, over a hundred years before Jeremiah's prophecies, The great prophet Isaiah foretold of this great king, Cyrus of Persia. Let's take a look at Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. Now, this verse is the last verse of the chapter, and it actually continues into Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1. Here's another example of a situation where the chapter break was perhaps not wisely chosen. These verses are right next to each other. So, Isaiah 44, verse 28, that saith of Cyrus... He is my shepherd, and shall perform all my pleasure, even saying to Jerusalem, Thou shalt be built, and to the temple thy foundation shall be laid. Thus saith the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden to subdue nations before him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. It's always been impressive to me that Isaiah actually names this king a couple of centuries before he comes. An important reminder from then-elder Ezra Taft Benson, this comes from an Enzyme article in July 1972 called Civic Standards for the Faithful Saints. He reminds us, quote, God the Father of us all uses the men of the earth, especially good men, to accomplish his purposes. It has been true in the past. It is true today. It will be true in the future. End quote. So true. God is the God of the whole earth. So let's read on and look for what Cyrus did to support the Jews in their efforts to rebuild the temple. 
in verse 4, And whosoever remaineth in any place where he sojourneth, let the men of his place help him with silver and with gold and with goods and with beasts beside the freewill offering for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And then in verse 7, Also Cyrus the king brought forth the vessels of the house of the Lord, which Nebuchadnezzar had brought forth out of Jerusalem and had put them in the house of his gods. Even those did Cyrus, king of Persia, bring forth by the hand of Mithridath, the treasurer, and numbered them unto Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. Now the New Oxford Annotated Bible says Sheshbazar led the first group of returnees to Jerusalem in 538 BC and began to rebuild the temple, but for some reason abandoned the project. So that brings us to Ezra chapter 2. Now, the New Oxford Annotated Bible mentions of this chapter, Zerubbabel led a second group of exiles and began the rebuilding of the temple again. Now, you might look at that name and say, well, I'm not going to try to pronounce that, but listen to how fun that is to say. Zerubbabel. 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 So please have fun reading that out loud whenever you say it. It's great. It feels wonderful on the tongue. Zerubbabel. Yes, plus one of the important temples is named after him. We call it the Temple of Zerubbabel, so we should be familiar with that. Now, this group, as described in Ezra chapter 2, included approximately 50,000 people. And that brings us to Ezra chapter 3. From the seminary manual, the Jews first rebuilt the altar of the temple and began offering sacrifices. They were directed by Zerubbabel, the Jewish man appointed by the Persians to serve as the governor of the Jews, and Jeshua, the presiding high priest of the Aaronic priesthood. Many Jews contributed time and resources to the reconstruction of the temple. Let's pick it up in verse 10. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their apparel with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord after the ordinance of David, king of Israel. And they sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers, who were ancient men, that had seen the first house, when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, and many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. Oh, man! Can you imagine their excitement? The temple was destroyed around 586 BC, and for 70 years they'd been without it. Prophecies were being fulfilled, and a new generation was returning to the promised land and rebuilding the house of the Lord. Quick side note on verse 11. Notice that it says, They sang together by course in praising and giving thanks unto the Lord, because he is good, for his mercy endureth forever toward Israel. This is interesting to me because if you look at Psalm 136, it has an interesting recurring line. After each verse, it repeats, For his mercy endureth forever. Psalm 136 verse 1 reads, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. 
I don't know for certain because I wasn't there, but I like to think that they were singing Psalm 136. We'll talk more about that later in the year when we study the Psalms. Very nice. Well, that brings us to Ezra chapter 4. When the 50,000 Jews returned to Jerusalem, there was a group of people living nearby called Samaritans. If you'll remember, Samaria was originally the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. But since it was conquered, the Samaritans were now the descendants of one foreign colonists placed there by kings of Assyria and Babylonia, and two Israelites who escaped at the time of the captivity. The population was therefore partly Israelite and partly Gentile. Their religion was also of a mixed character. For more on that, check out the Bible Dictionary under Samaritans. Let's start chapter 4 in verse 1. Now, when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the children of the captivity builded the temple unto the Lord God of Israel, then they came to Zerubbabel and to the chief of the fathers and said unto them, Let us build with you, for we seek your God as ye do, and we do sacrifice unto him since the days of Esar Haddon, king of Assur, which brought us up hither. Now, although the request seems harmless, the Samaritans are described in verse 1 as the adversaries of Judah. So let's see what the response is in verse 3. But Zerubbabel and Jeshua and the rest of the chief of the fathers of Israel said unto them, Ye have nothing to do with us to build an house unto our God. But we ourselves together will build unto the Lord God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, hath commanded us. Then the people of the land weakened the hands of the people of Judah, and troubled them in building, and hired counselors against them to frustrate their purpose. All the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So although it's not completely clear why Zerubbabel refused the Samaritans' help, Some suggest they had nefarious intentions, thinking that the Samaritans wanted to sabotage the project like others in the region. At the very least, there must have been a concern that the Samaritans' participation could have led to future conflicts if they claimed shared ownership of the reconstructed temple. Yeah. In verses 6 through 24, these verses are out of chronological order, but serve to document how foreign adversaries repeatedly sabotaged the Jewish rebuilding of the temple by making false accusations to the Persian king. Let's take a look, say, at verse 13. They accuse, if you let them rebuild, they will withhold tribute from you. In verse 14, if you let them do this, you will be dishonored as king. Verse 15, the Jews have rebelled before, which is why the city was destroyed in the first place. And in verse 16, if you allow them to regain power and fortify their city, they will take over the whole region. Because of these efforts, the reconstruction of the temple halted for several years, and some Jews lost interest in rebuilding the temple. And that brings us to Ezra chapter 5. Let's start in verse 1. Then the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. By the way, these are both prophetic books we will study later this year. Yeah, and as a quick note... You can pronounce the name Haggai if you want to. That's what they do in the audio scriptures. However, there's a great controversy, and maybe this is tearing apart your household, but the primary song pronounces it Haggai, or closer to what John was saying, Haggai. 
So you're absolutely justified every time you want to pronounce each of the verses. But whether you choose the audio scriptures or the primary song, don't let contention build in your home. (laughs) Pronounce it however you want to. All right, back to the verse. Then the prophets Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo prophesied unto the Jews that were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel, even unto them. Then rose up Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel and Jeshua the son of Josedek, and began to build the house of God, which is at Jerusalem. And with them were the prophets of God helping them. In the next couple of verses, when local Persian-appointed governors learned that the Jews had resumed building the temple, they questioned the Jews' authority to do so and opposed the Jews' renewed efforts. In verse 5, But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, that they could not cause them to cease, till the matter came to Darius, And then they returned answer by letter concerning this matter. So what do we learn from this? Do you notice how God watches over and helps those who seek to obey him? They've got opposition on every side, and yet the eye of their God was upon them. Now, starting in chapter 5, verse 6, and going on in through chapter 6, we find that the governors over the region wrote a letter to King Darius informing him that the Jews claimed that Cyrus, the previous king, had made a decree allowing them to rebuild the temple and had provided them with resources for the endeavor. Darius ordered the king's records to be searched, and Cyrus's decree was found. With the help and encouragement of the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, the Jews finished building the temple, dedicated it to the Lord, and offered sacrifices to him. Let's take a look at a couple of those verses in chapter 6. Let's take a look at 16. And the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the children of the captivity kept the dedication of this house of God with joy. And then in verse 22, and kept the feast of unleavened bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and turned the heart of the king of Assyria unto them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Now that fits right in with what Thomas S. Monson said in General Conference in April of 2011. He said, quote, temples bring joy to our faithful members wherever they are built, close quote. That's beautiful. And that brings us to Ezra chapters 7 and 8. And finally, Ezra enters the story in the book of Ezra. Welcome, Ezra. More than 60 years after the completion of the temple, King Artaxerxes of Persia sent a Jewish scribe named Ezra to Jerusalem to appoint government leaders and present an offering to beautify the temple. Let's take a look at verse 10 of chapter 7. For Ezra had prepared his heart to seek the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach in Israel statutes and judgments. Although the journey was dangerous, Ezra and his traveling companions arrived safely in Jerusalem after they fasted and prayed and were divinely guided and protected. So that brings us to Ezra chapter 9. When Ezra arrived in Jerusalem, this is what he found. Let's start in verse 1. Now when these things were done, the princes came to me, saying, 
the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands, doing according to their abominations, even of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken of their daughters for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy seed have mingled themselves with the people of those lands. Yea, the hand of the princes and rulers hath been chief in this trespass. And when I heard this thing, I rent my garment and my mantle, and plucked off the hair of my head and of my beard, and sat down astonished. Now, notice the concern. You may remember that the law of Moses forbade Israelites from marrying those who worshipped idols and other false gods. Remember Deuteronomy 7, verses 3 through 6. Yet many Israelites in Jerusalem had intermarried with these unbelieving people, which led the Israelites to adopt false religious practices. If you haven't noticed the pattern this year, I would encourage you, this is another example of a testimony of how powerful women were. Their influence on their family in religious beliefs, cultural practices. Remember that children learned those things, civic duties, all of those things came from their mothers. So in this case, when they married women outside the covenant, this is a driving force in what led them to those practices. But it has nothing to do with ethnicity or bloodline. We learned that from Rahab and Ruth and others. The Lord will bless those who serve him. This has to do with what they're bringing in in their religious and cultural beliefs and how it's changing what God expects of his people. So in verses 4 through 15 of chapter 9, Ezra prayed and acknowledged the sins of the people. He also recounted the consequences the Israelites had suffered in the past because of their sins. And that brings us to Ezra chapter 10, the last chapter, starting in verse 1. Now when Ezra had prayed, and when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there assembled unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. And Shechaniah the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam, answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God, and have taken strange wives of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them, according to the counsel of my Lord and of those that tremble at the commandment of our God, and let it be done according to the law. So in the next few verses, Ezra called for all of the Israelites living throughout Judah to meet together at Jerusalem in three days. So in verse 10, And Ezra the priest stood up and said unto them, Ye have transgressed, and have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. Now therefore, make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers, and do his pleasure, and separate yourselves from the people of the land, and from the strange wives. Now you can imagine how difficult it may have been for the Israelites to repent and separate themselves from their wives who worshipped idols. Why was this important? Sometimes we need to separate ourselves from the consequences of bad choices to truly repent. This can sometimes mean severing relationships, especially when they're a toxic influence on us and take us away from God. In verse 12, 
Then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so must we do. This was a commandment given at this time, and the message is clear to us regarding purging evil influences from our lives as part of repentance. But even though we're encouraged to marry in the temple, leaders of the church have not commanded church members to divorce spouses who do not share their beliefs. Understand this in the context of this time at this place. And this may certainly be speculation on my part, but I have to believe that there are situations in which foreign wives may have converted to following the Lord, and those probably were not separated from them. Yeah, I think that's certainly true. The seminary manual gives us this great quote from Elder Richard G. Scott. This comes from October 2004 General Conference. He says, quote, I testify that of all the necessary steps to repentance, the most critically important is for you to have a conviction that forgiveness comes in and through Jesus Christ. It is essential to know that only on his terms can you be forgiven. You will be helped as you exercise faith in Christ. That means you trust him and his teachings, end quote. And that is even more important to do when what you're being asked to do is hard. Right. So in the remaining verses of the chapter, Ezra appointed priesthood leaders to travel among the Israelites to help them do what the Lord had commanded. And that's Ezra. If you'd like some additional helpful context and background for the book of Ezra, we recommend this Enzyme article from December 2002 from Brian D. Garner called Ezra Unfolds the Scriptures. We'll include a link in the description. Also, some interesting notes I found in the Bible Dictionary article under Ezra. It says, quote, A good many traditions have gathered around the name of Ezra. He is said to have formed the canon of the Hebrew Scripture and to have established an important national council called the Great Synagogue over which he presided. But for none of these traditions is there trustworthy evidence. The Jews of later days were inclined to attribute to the influence of Ezra every religious development between the days of Nehemiah and the Maccabees, end quote. That's interesting. Yeah, I want to point out that what the Bible Dictionary is saying is that it's not that Ezra didn't have this profound influence on the Jews, and he may have been the one to form the Hebrew canon of Scripture. We just don't have a lot of evidence to say whether he did or didn't. And that's kind of the problem when you're dealing with history that's a few thousand years old. Right. Now that brings us to the book of Nehemiah. We have another great article to recommend from the same enzyme as the Ezra article, December 2002. It's called Wanted Modern Nehemiahs, and it's from Elder Modesto M. Amistad Jr. We'll include a link for that one as well in the description. A great article. And we'll quote a little bit from it later in the lesson. From the seminary manual, it offers this introduction. The book of Nehemiah is the continuation of the account that begins in the book of Ezra. The books of Ezra and Nehemiah originally made up one book in the Hebrew scriptural canon. The book was divided into two books in the 3rd century AD. As an aside, we found other resources that say that this happened much later. Going back to the seminary manual. The book of Nehemiah records an important time period in Jewish history, which included the rebuilding of the city of Jerusalem, as well as the rebuilding of the spiritual lives of the Jews who had returned from captivity. 
When the Israelites returned to Jerusalem after their long captivity in Babylon, they found their city in ruins. The protective wall around the city of Jerusalem had been reduced to rubble, which left the Israelites vulnerable to attacks by their enemies. Under the direction of Nehemiah, the Israelites began to rebuild the wall. During the reconstruction of the wall, the Israelites again faced opposition. But as Elder Jeffrey R. Holland reminds us in a New Era article in August 2004, quote, Opposition turns up almost any place something good has happened, end quote. And isn't that the truth? Nice. So who was Nehemiah? Nehemiah was a Jew who served as the cupbearer to the Persian king. We find this out in verse 11 of chapter 1. As the cupbearer, he was in charge of protecting the king's cup from being poisoned. Nehemiah was in a position of trust and honor before the king. So let's take a look at Nehemiah chapter 1. Now the first thing to notice in verse 1 is that this is written in the first person. It's an autobiographical style. We don't usually see that in the historical texts. So this book appears to have been written by Nehemiah himself. Concerning Jerusalem, Nehemiah was told in verse 3, And they said unto me, The remnant that are left of the captivity there in the province are in great affliction and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem also is broken down, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. You know, in our previous book, Ezra was concerned for the spiritual rebuilding of Jerusalem and its people. Nehemiah will be as well, but he will be an instrument in the hands of God to restore political and military stability and physical safety for the people. So what does this reaction teach you about who Nehemiah was? Let's read it in verse 4. And it came to pass when I heard these words that I sat down and wept and mourned certain days and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Now, in verses 5 through 11, these verses contain Nehemiah's prayer for the Jews in Jerusalem. He also prayed that the Lord would prosper him as he sought help from the Persian king Artaxerxes. And that brings us to Nehemiah chapter 2. Let's start in verse 1. And it came to pass in the month Nisan, in the twentieth year of Artaxerxes the king, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it unto the king. Now I had not been before time sad in his presence. Wherefore the king said unto me, Why is thy countenance sad, seeing thou art not sick? This is nothing else but sorrow of heart. Then I was very sore afraid, and said unto the king, Let the king live forever. Why should not my countenance be sad when the city, the place of my father's sepulchres, lieth waste, and the gates thereof are consumed with fire? Then the king said unto me, For what dost thou make request? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said unto the king, If it please the king, and if thy servant have found favor in thy sight, that thou wouldst send me unto Judah, unto the city of my father's sepulchres, that I may build it. And the king said unto me, the queen also sitting by him, For how long shall thy journey be, and when wilt thou return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I set him a time. So how cool is this king? Artaxerxes, the way he's described here, he sounds amazing. Definitely seems to be inspired by the hand of God. Well, I think it says a lot about his character that he was genuinely concerned that his servant was feeling sorrowful and he wanted to help. 
Well, it would be, too, with the servant he cared a lot about and how much more he must care about him to let such a good servant go. But I love that he says, uh, but I also want you to come back because <laughs> you're pretty awesome. So, you know, absolutely. But just let me know when you're going to come back. In the next verses, Nehemiah requested that the king write letters to the governors of Persian provinces so they would allow Nehemiah to pass through their lands on his way to Jerusalem. The king also provided Nehemiah with supplies he needed to rebuild the walls and gates of the city. Let's pick it up in verse 17. Then said I unto them, Ye see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lieth waste, and the gates thereof are burned with fire. Come, and let us build up the wall of Jerusalem, that we be no more a reproach. Then I told them of the hand of my God, which was good upon me, as also the king's words that he had spoken unto me. And they said, Let us rise up and build. So they strengthened their hands for this good work. But when Sanballat the Horonite, and Tobiah the servant, the Ammonite, and Geshem the Arabian heard it, they laughed us to scorn and despised us and said, What is this thing that ye do? Will ye rebel against the king? Hmm. And that brings us to Nehemiah chapter 3. Let's take a look in verse 1. Then Eliashib the high priest rose up with his brethren the priests, and they builded the sheep gate, they sanctified it, and set up the doors of it. Even unto the tower of Meah they sanctified it, unto the tower of Hananiel. And next unto him builded the men of Jericho, and next to them builded Zachar the son of Imri. But the fish gate did the sons of Hassaniah build who also laid the beams thereof, and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. And next unto him repaired Shalom, the son of Helohesh, the ruler of the half part of Jerusalem, he and his daughters. The valley gate repaired Hanan, the inhabitants of Zenoah. They built it, and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof, and a thousand cubits on the wall unto the dung gate. But the dung gate repaired Melchiah, the son of Rechab, the ruler of part of beth he built it, and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof. But the gate of the fountain repaired Shalon, the son of Kolhosa, the ruler of part of Mizpah. He built it, and covered it, and set up the doors thereof, the locks thereof, and the bars thereof, and the wall of the pool of Siloah, by the king's garden, and unto the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him repaired Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, the ruler of the half part of Bethzur unto the place over against the sepulchres of David, and to the pool that was made, and unto the house of the mighty. Well, nice job with all those names. Whew! It was fun, though. <laughs> yeah, there's some great names in there. Don't overlook the fact that what it's telling us is look how everybody's doing their part. And what about verse 12? We've got a ruler of half of the part of Jerusalem, he did the repairs with his daughters. How great is that? I mean, everybody's involved. What a difference it made with each person doing their part. This is one way that we can overcome opposition to God's work in our own lives or as part of his great work. Look for other things that can help us to overcome opposition as we look ahead in Nehemiah chapter 4. Let's start in verse 6. So built we the wall, and all the wall was joined together unto the half thereof, for the people had a mind to work. But it came to pass that when Sanballat, 
and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the walls of Jerusalem were made up and that the breaches began to be stopped, then they were very wroth and conspired all of them together to come and to fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. Nevertheless, we made our prayer unto our God and set a watch against them day and night because of them. Jumping to verse 14. And I looked and rose up and said unto the nobles and to the rulers and to the rest of the people, Be not ye afraid of them. Remember the Lord, which is great and terrible, and fight for your brethren, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your houses. And it came to pass, when our enemies heard that it was known unto us, and God had brought their counsel to naught, that we returned all of us to the wall, every one unto his work. And it came to pass from that time forth that the half of my servants wrought in the work, and the other half of them held both the spears, the shields, and the bows, and the habergeons, and the rulers were behind all the house of Judah. They which builded on the wall, and they that bear burdens, with those that laded, every one with one of his hands wrought in the work, and with the other hand held a weapon. Wow. Again, we've got people all doing their duty, everyone working together, doing their part. But I love this vision of the fact that they're engaged in God's work, but they are not unaware of what's happening in the world. And so they've got their hand to the work. They've got their other hand with the weapon of the world to protect against dangers. So going forward, what can we learn from the events in our next chapter? That's Nehemiah chapter 6. Let's start in verse 1. Now it came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem, the Arabian, and the rest of our enemies heard that I had builded the wall and that there was no breach left therein, though at that time I had not set up the doors upon the gates, that Sanballat and Geshem sent unto me, saying, Come, let us meet together in some one of the villages in the plain of Ono. But they thought to do me mischief. Oh, no. Oh, no, indeed. Verse 3. And I sent messengers unto them, saying, I am doing a great work, so that I cannot come down. Why should the work cease whilst I leave it and come down to you? Yet they sent unto me four times after this sort, and I answered them after the same manner. Then sent Sanballat his servant unto me in like manner the fifth time with an open letter in his hand, wherein was written, it is reported among the heathen, and Gashmu saith it, that thou and the Jews think to rebel, for which cause thou buildest the wall, that thou mayest be their king, according to these words. And thou hast also appointed prophets to preach of thee at Jerusalem, saying, There is a king in Judah, and now shall it be reported to the king according to these words. Come now, therefore, and let us take counsel together. Then I sent unto him, saying, there are no such things done as thou sayest, but thou feignest them out of thine own heart. For they all made us afraid, saying, Their hands shall be weakened from the work, that it be not done. Now therefore, O God, strengthen my hands. There's a great modern application here, I think. All of their efforts to stall the work of the Lord by distracting Nehemiah and his people. And if that didn't work, which it didn't, then they made up false accusations 
including an accusation that they think to rebel against the king. And they made it sound like, well, we're going to tell on you. Think today about the false accusations that people levy in order to distract us from the work. Today, we have a multitude of things that are phobic. If you don't like something, then you must be phobic of it. And those accusations can really hurt because we know that it's against our intentions. These are false accusations, but we cannot let the work stop to be distracted, even when falsely accused. Nehemiah says, O God, strengthen my hands. President Dieter F. Uchtdorf in the April 2009 General Conference said, quote, Think of the power we would have as individuals if in response to every temptation to lose focus or lower our standards, the standards of God, we responded, I am doing a great work and cannot come down. Close quote. Let's keep moving forward in verse 15. So the wall was finished in the 20 and 5th day of the month Elul in 50 and 2 days. And it came to pass that when all our enemies heard thereof and all the heathen that were about us saw these things, they were much cast down in their own eyes. For they perceived that this work was wrought of our God. I love that description. The enemies essentially realized they were wrong, that this was the work of God. One of the best things that I think we can do to help to convince people of the divine nature of this work is to be true to God, to pray that he strengthens our hands, and to keep moving forward in good things. And then they may, as did the people in the days of Nehemiah, perceive that this work was wrought of our God. That brings us to Nehemiah chapter 7. In that chapter, the Lord inspired Nehemiah to trace the genealogy of the Israelites who had returned to Jerusalem, men who claimed to be of the tribe of Levi, but did not have genealogical records to prove their ancestry, were denied the priesthood. And that brings us to Nehemiah chapter 8. Let's start in verse 1. And all the people gathered themselves together as one man into the street that was before the water gate. And they spake unto Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded to Israel. And Ezra the priest brought the law before the congregation both of men and women, and all that could hear with understanding upon the first day of the seventh month. And he read therein before the street that was before the water gate from the morning until midday, before the men and the women, and those that could understand, and the ears of all the people were attentive unto the book of the law. So something to remember in this, people don't have pocket versions of their scriptures. People commonly at this time didn't have copies of the scriptures at all. It's possible that in this audience were many people that had never heard these words before. This was an important moment. What impact does that have on us when we hear and understand the scriptures? How does that help us be attentive? Let's look at how it impacted the Jews. In verse 6, And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Skipping to verse 12, And all the people went their way to eat and to drink and to send portions and to make great mirth because they had understood the words that were declared unto them. Now, I want you to remember, when it says, because they had understood the words that were declared unto them, remember 
The scriptures, the law of Moses, was written in Hebrew. The people at this time had been living in Babylon and were speaking Aramaic, and they had been there for 70 years. Many of these people couldn't speak Hebrew anymore and couldn't understand it. This is why someone like Ezra is really important. He is someone who will have known Hebrew and Aramaic and probably Persian and would be able to explain what these words mean. In our video, How We Got the Bible, we talk about this time period as when the scriptures first started to be translated from Hebrew into Aramaic. And if you want to learn more about that, please check out our video, How We Got the Bible. Right. So this is the theme throughout Nehemiah 8. Once the Jews understood the scriptures, they blessed the Lord and acted immediately to obey the law. It might be a great moment of self-reflection to ask how much more you have learned to understand the scriptures during our Come Follow Me studies, and if that has helped you to be more motivated to obey and follow the Lord. That brings us to Nehemiah chapter 9. In this chapter, we read that the Jews fasted, confessed their sins, and recited their history. They also expressed their gratitude for the blessings of the Lord. Let's look at an example of that in verse 15. And gave us them bread from heaven for their hunger, and brought us forth water for them out of the rock for their thirst, and promised them that they should go in to possess the land which thou hadst sworn to give them. But they and our fathers dealt proudly and hardened their necks and hearkened not to thy commandments and refused to obey, neither were mindful of thy wonders that thou didst among them, but hardened their necks and in their rebellion appointed a captain to return to their bondage. But thou art a God ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness and forsookest them not. How important is it to remember and understand our history and where we've come from and where we're going? This is a great moment for these people. Let's continue in verse 18. Yea, when they had made them a molten calf and said, This is thy God that brought thee up out of Egypt and had wrought great provocations, yet thou in thy manifold mercies forsookest them not in the wilderness, the pillar of the cloud departed not from them by day to lead them in the way, neither the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way wherein they should go. Thou gavest also thy good spirit to instruct them and withheldest not thy manna from their mouth and gavest them water for their thirst. It's a really beautiful image and it's great to hear them reflect on their history in such a way that they understood and could learn from the mistakes the previous generations had made. Going on to verse 24, So the children went in and possessed the land, and thou subduest before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gavest them into their hands with their kings and the people of the land, that they might do with them as they would. And they took strong cities and a fat land, and possessed houses full of all goods, wells digged, vineyards and olive yards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they did eat and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in thy great goodness. Nevertheless, 
they were disobedient and rebelled against thee and cast thy law behind their backs and slew thy prophets, which testified against them to turn them to thee. And they wrought great provocations. Therefore thou deliverest them into the hand of their enemies who vexed them. And in the time of their trouble, when they cried unto thee, thou heardest them from heaven. And according to thy manifold mercies, thou gavest them saviors who saved them out of the hand of their enemies. You know, remembering and being grateful to God, reading the Holy Scriptures attentively, repenting of sins, where does it lead? Take a look in verse 38. And because of all this, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. The covenant path. So where does all this lead? To make covenants with God. Indeed. And that brings us to Nehemiah chapter 10. After the Israelites understood the scriptures, they covenanted not to marry outside of Israel and to keep the Sabbath day holy. Chapters 11 and 12, after the people determined who would live in Jerusalem and who would live in other cities, the walls of Jerusalem were dedicated. And that brings us to the final chapter, Nehemiah chapter 13. While Nehemiah was away from Jerusalem for several years, many of the Jews struggled to live according to their covenants. Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem and helped them keep their covenants by removing evil influences and reinstituting Sabbath observance. Let me share with you a couple of quotes from the talk we referenced earlier, Wanted, Modern Nehemiahs from the December 2002 Enzyme. This was written by Elder Modesto M. Amistad, Jr. He writes this, quote, Nehemiah was not satisfied with simply building physical structures. He wanted his people to be edified spiritually as well, and he helped the Jews take control of their lives, land, and destiny as the people of God. He was humble, self-motivated, confident in the will of God, willing to take the lead, full of faith, fearless, an organizer, obedient, and just. Nehemiah's story of inspired leadership and mission to rebuild walls and lives teaches us of a loving and merciful Father in heaven. He gave his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ, to atone for the sins of all mankind. His atonement makes our glorious return to their presence possible. The road toward that return may at times be difficult, but it is very possible only because of and through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. The valiance of Nehemiah is an example of what the Lord requires of the Latter-day Saints today. The courage to rebuild the lives of his scattered people and bring them back into his presence. Close quote. Wow, that's so great. What inspired events we talked about today. So what have you learned about Ezra and Nehemiah that maybe you didn't know before? And how will it inspire you to be strong in fighting against adversity and in helping the Lord strengthen you to do good, to not come down to the standards of the world, but to lock into and build solid foundations in the standards that God has set. Keep doing a good work and keep reading your scriptures. We'll talk more about them in our next lesson. We'll see you then. 
This podcast is not officially affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, but we're really big fans. 